Today's scripture is from Acts 20, verses 13 through 27. Um, that's going to be on page 929, the Bible in the pew in front of you, if you're using that one. I'll give you guys a second to flip to that. Once again, that is Acts 20, 13 through 27. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks the repentance toward God of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account myself uh, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel from God. Good morning, church. Super Sunday. We're always struck by days like this where millions of eyes will be upon a single event, and yet the eternal significance is greater in a gathering like this one and many others like it across our world. And so are you ready? Have you come with that kind of expectation or anticipation of being met by God through His Word That's how we are rightly approaching His Word, that it is living and active, that it is all profitable. And so we turn to it again. And maybe just a simple prayer in accordance with the Puritans, you would join me in this. Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. We turn to Your Word, Lord. Amen. John Chrysostom His name means golden-tongued. He's regarded as one of the greatest preachers in church history. He preached relentlessly in the 4th century A.D., uh, mostly in 
Constantinople, today modern-day Turkey. And even though there was a change in openness to the message of Christ, his preaching still uh, riled and threatened and disturbed, and he, was, he himself was threatened uh, with exile if he didn't cool it off a bit. And what was his response? He said this, What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be loss of wealth? But we brought nothing into the world and can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes, and I smile at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear. Riches I do not sigh for. Death I do not shrink from. Sound familiar? Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? All faith-filled preaching is born the same place. Fast forward uh, over 1,600 years and a note that I received this week from uh, Jeff and Renee, our sent ones serving in Zim. Uh, Not sure about the golden tongues, but the golden hearts to be sure. They wrote this, Some of the best work I've seen our Savior do is when I am out of options, at the limit of my resources, and exhausted all my efforts. Then He shows up and declares what only He can do. And that is this time yet again in our lives. We've been invited to pray with them in a specific way this week as we continue to pray with them on their faithfulness to follow the call of God. But interesting to me, all faith-filled preaching and therefore living is born the same place, so it sounds the same. And we would rightly, if not humbly, ask ourselves, does my preaching sound like that? And to be sure, not all of us have the call to preach like the Smiths or like John Chrysostom or in a context even like this one as I am doing now, but to be sure and be sure, you preach. Your life and your words preach, often many times throughout the day. The way that you live in word and then the words you speak uh, proclaim what you believe is true. Is your preaching faith-filled? If it is, it will be risky Faith takes risks. It's last on our list of core convictions. They're not necessarily in uh, an order one through ten, but it's time to hit this one. And though I haven't preached on this one specifically as titled in Acts, I essentially have been preaching it throughout Acts. And really, every one of our core convictions of the church is drawn from and certainly on display in almost every passage we see uh, in Acts. And so we come to this one knowing it's about time that we uh, put Acts on the shelf for a few months and look into Ephesians. So we've been hinting at that. If you're newer with us this morning, we've been journeying through Acts for 15 months now, and it's been the world's longest preludes to a sermon series. But we've now seen the church in Ephesus planted. Here's Paul now speaking to the Ephesian elders. And they will not see him again. And so because they will not see him again, he will write a letter to them while in chains, while imprisoned in Rome. Last week I highlighted a a couple of our other core convictions. And I guess amongst this longest prelude to a sermon series, it's also a series within a series, our core convictions series. 
And so we finally hit this one. Faith takes risk. I highlighted we need one another last week and knowing and living God's Word is vital. And we really continue to see these and will continue when we pick it back up again. Uh, when we developed these, our leadership team wrestled with that final S. Is it faith takes risks or is it faith takes risk? And in some ways, they're both equally true. It captures the whole life of a disciple. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus is not only costly, it's risky. Hebrews 11 teaches us this and the definition of faith we have in Scripture, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And then the author goes to describe faith-filled men and women throughout history who put their lives on the line, risked their comforts, their personal securities, and their preferences to follow the call of God. What an illustration that is. And certainly we've seen that throughout Acts. Faithful men and women risking their comforts, their securities, their personal preferences, and even their lives to follow the call of God to make Him known from Jerusalem to Judea, throughout Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, as I said, even though I haven't preached a single sermon titled Faith-Filled Risk, nonetheless, we've been seeing it throughout the book. Paul clearly embodied this conviction. He lived his whole life this way. He never asked, is this a safe path? Is this the prudent choice? Does this make logical sense? All he asked was, is this God's will? And then he faithfully followed, taking risk after risk after risk. He even went against godly counsel at time. We'll see in the very next chapter, his friend Agabus, a prophet, spoke to him saying, if you do this, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested and your life will be on the line. Ultimately, that message came to Agabus for him to proclaim as if Paul needed to hear once again exactly what God had called him to. And what was Paul's response? This is Acts 21, verse 13. He said, What are you doing, Agabus, weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Relentless in his faith-filled living, his faith-filled risking. Ultimately, he wouldn't die in Jerusalem, but he would be arrested and from there taken to Rome, which was his desire all along, so God fulfilled that too, that the gospel would be proclaimed, though it came out of a, a prison cell deep in the imperial guard's chains. If faith means trusting and following Jesus, faith takes risk and risks. But be sure of this, the bigger risk we might take is to ignore or dismiss the call of God. And Jesus said, if you try to protect your life, you'll ultimately lose everything. He said also in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot 
kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The goal, our goal, is not a long life. It's a faithful one. And if our life would be cut short doing the will of God, it will yet be a full one. I want to keep this as practical as possible. Paul does as he speaks to the Ephesian elders. It's a great text for faith-filled risk. It might not at first seem that way. There's great passages throughout Scripture that preachers like this one love to preach on faith-filled risk, on courage, on boldness, on following the call of God. But they are hardly practical. We have to... We have to get there to our current context. Right? So, I mean, next time you are standing before a king and he is demanding that you bow to him or renounce your faith, or you will be thrown to the lions or into the furnace. I hope you've committed to stand. The next time a nine foot tall giant is threatening your nation's army, I hope your stone slinging skills are finely tuned. The next time you're on a boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus calls to you to walk on the water, I hope you've decided ahead of time to not hesitate. Now we love passages like this one, and not to diminish them and the call of God into into the lives of those and those places and those times, or even that He will call us to take faith-filled risks in significant ways. But I'm talking about faith-filled, risky living day to day as we get up in the morning and set our minds and our hearts on the call of God. Do we recognize the risk? I think we live in response to that risk often. But if we do not see it and step into it on a day-to-day basis, we likely aren't being faithful to the call that God has given us. And so I want to stay practical as Paul does. What will be similar, because our story, our journey will not be the same as it was for Daniel or David or Peter or even Paul, but what is the same is the call, the very simple but powerful call that Jesus gave to His first disciples. He said, leave your nets, follow Me, and I will make you. And that could be preached and should be preached maybe all day, every day. Jesus' call to each one of us, leave your nets, leave your source of security, your source of identity, everything that made sense to you, lay it down, follow me. And there's a whole new adventure, a whole new story, and a whole new identity. It may not be a safe one, but it will be a life giving one. I will make you, Jesus says. I will be the one who makes you, helps you find yourself, find your purpose, see your identity in me, and ultimately experience the joy, the gifting, and the empowering for life that He intends and He alone. That's what's the same. That's what ultimately leads to faith-filled living, which is often not safe, but risky. We may find ourselves one day facing a giant in the middle of a storm, facing a decision that could change everything in our life. And how do we take those steps? 
ultimately, the biggest step of all is saying yes to the call of Jesus to lay down our nets, to follow Him, and let Him make us. If we've taken that step, then really every day from that moment, we're on a journey. We're told throughout Scripture, keep in step with the Spirit. Find out, as we've heard today, find out what pleases the Lord. Walk and stay true to the path that God has called you to. And so when we come to those maybe seemingly massive steps, a thousand steps have led up to that one and have prepared us to take one more. And so will we be faithful day by day in the practical things, the things that Paul reminds these leaders of the church and therefore are so essential for every one of us, not just leaders, but disciples, followers of Jesus. I think we're rightly convicted by his faith, but I hope also inspired by it. Here again, verse 22, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit. I must follow his lead, is what he's saying. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. When Jesus called Paul, he told him how much he would come to suffer for his name. He would learn through suffering, through risking, through laying down his life so that when the time finally came, he was ready and willing. You know, he would write back to the Philippian church, I'm ready. For me to die is my gain, but to live is Christ. And he submitted his life that way. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious. I'm not trying to save my life or protect it. If only I may finish the race, finish the course, and the ministry that I've been called to, I've received from the Lord Jesus. And this is the ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Certainly faith-filled risk is needed in those kinds of extreme life-altering circumstances or situations that come to us, but it is needed in the everyday, the everyday living that Paul is now speaking to the Ephesian elders about. So here again, verse 18, you yourselves know, draw out the practical, I'll highlight a few. You, you, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia and I served the Lord with all humility and with tears, even in the trials that were happening to me through the plots of the Jews, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's examine some of these powerful and yet practical words. Truth spoken in love tends to both convict and encourage. God's Word is always doing that. We're not condemned by it, we're convicted. But rightly encouraged by the hope that it brings as it points us to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. First, Paul says, you know how I lived among you. You know me. He was with them for three years, maybe longer than any other place he visited on his missionary journeys. For three years, he lived amongst them, and he said, you know me. That's integrity. It's vulnerability. You were with me when we were, every evening we were eating together, 
fellowshipping. You saw me at work during the day. You saw me in public when I preached amongst the Jews and the crowds that had gathered amongst the Greeks. You know me. And I was the same. My message may have sounded different in different contexts. It was contextualized. But my character was the same. Man, that is faith-filled risk that is so desperately needed in the church today, let alone our world. Vulnerability, transparency, integrity. No matter what setting you're in, you're the same. Is that true? At work? Or amongst friends? Friends from the past, current ones, amongst family? Or at school? What about when you're alone? What if we were to do an exercise and you were to take your phone, your wallet, your email password, and your credit card statement and give it to someone at random in this room? They look through it all. Does your heart start to beat and quicken that maybe even the one sitting right next to you, you wouldn't want to scrutinize the records found within? Integrity, vulnerability, transparency. What about the integrity of our attitude? Are we the same regardless of our circumstances? Paul would say that. I've learned the secret of being content, of being the same in character, whether in abundance, when, when things are going well, or in poverty, when things are not going well. Are we, do we have integrity of attitude when the sun is shining, when we just got the promotion, when the family is healthy and well, when the scale reads the lowest number we've seen in years, when we're going on vacation next week? What about on the uh, other days when it's gray and cloudy, when we've lost the job or can't find one, when the scale is our enemy, when we're fighting pain or illness, when we're not even sure how to pay the electric bill, let alone go on vacation? How's our attitude? Are we the same? We're full of joy and hope and life Maybe less smiles on our face. But when we have opportunity to give testimony, to witness, to speak, it is out of the overflow of the same heart. It's unwavering, as Paul proclaims. You know me. How is this faith-filled risk? So I was stretching this here a little bit. How is this faith-filled risk to live this way? vulnerable, transparent, because we have committed our whole life to God's promise and promises that my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. When we've committed our whole life that way, we can begin to live with full integrity, unwavering in any circumstance, in any situation, because we are not living for other people or other things, but an audience of one Neither is our hope or our joy found in earthly things or circumstances or affirmation or approval or effectiveness. When we believe in the promises of God, we know that this is merely temporary. However long that lasts, however many days or years, it is temporary. 
in light of eternity. And when we trust these promises of God, we know there's someone else who is looking out for us and our greatest good, and we need not protect it and find it for ourselves. That's risky. That's faith-filled risk to live that way. That no one else is looking out for me except for one, and I need not. I can yield. And that leads to service. That's what Paul says. In all humility, I serve the Lord. He served the Lord by preaching the gospel and by ministering to the needs of the people. And really, you can only begin to truly serve in humility when you believe those promises. Because to sacrifice for others, to give yourself away, to consider others' needs greater than your own, means the risk of no one else doing that for you. What if you are overlooked or bypassed? What if no one cares for your needs and you spend your life giving away? You should reserve some, shouldn't you? It's also risky in the world that we live in. This kind of humility, as Paul says, verse 19, in all humility. Humility isn't thinking little of yourself, as has been said. It's not thinking of yourself at all. That's true humility. In C.S. Lewis's kind of twisted screw tape letters, I know some have probably read that, it's from a different perspective highlighting the reality of who God is and what faith looks like. But he describes this, defines it this way, humility is a state of mind in which a man can design and build the greatest cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in that fact. And yet not be any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it himself than he would have if someone else had done it. That's humility. Humility is risky. Not, not just, what, what, if, what if no one looks out for me? But if we take that true posture of a humble servant that gives ourselves away, what if people take from us? What if we're not respected? What if we're taken advantage of or trampled on or overlooked or bypassed because we choose to live humbly and meekly and to serve rather than put on a persona of strength and confidence? There's a risk at that. Perhaps a good one. But there will be one person who always sees. I'll keep hinting at that as we move through. What about tears? Twice Paul speaks of tearful ministry, verse 19 and verse 31. In those years, it was full of plenty of tears. He was in tune and expressive with emotion. And then we see it at this final moment as they kneel down to pray together. Remember, these are the leaders, the wisest, the mature ones, probably the older men of this church, and there's not a dry eye. They're there weeping. I highlighted last week, as, uh, in contrast to often what we receive from Paul in his writings, the strength, the boldness, sometimes the harshness of his tone, when he ministered with people and became known to them, they loved him deeply and they wept that he would not come be with them again, that that's what they were expecting. He was truly a friend. Faith in Jesus 
means we have been given a new heart. He's replaced this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Ultimately, His heart. Which means that we would weep or grieve over the things that also break His heart. It means that we would also overflow with joy and with emotion on the things that rejoice the heart of God. And again, to do this is risky. I think maybe especially amongst men in our culture to be vulnerable in that way. That we would live with passion and emotion. That we would have tears maybe in times of sorrow and in times of joy. That we would be moved. And we would say, what, what, what would others think of us if I, if I was th- that expressive with my emotion? What would God think of us if we never express emotion? If we never weep with those who are hurting or suffering or broken or lost? If we never weep at our own sin and our own lostness? If we never respond with passion and emotion to injustices in our world? A holy indignation? What would God think if we never respond with exuberance in worship of Him. And that may look different, but King David comes to mind who danced in his underwear and didn't care. If you're not sure of that story, check out Second Samuel chapter 6. And we say, I just, I'm not moved by much. And yet, a 20-something who can kick, throw, or bounce a ball may move us to great emotion or move us to our feet or to tears? Are we in tune with the heart of God in us and expressive with it? Paul was fully willing to shed tears. What about believing and proclaiming the whole counsel of God? Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And then verse 27, he says it again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul risked his life to preach that way. To preach the truth in love, but to proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God. Our lives may not be on the line in our culture our context to proclaim the whole counsel of the word of God but it is not popular have you noticed what will it cost us if we were to proclaim the whole counsel of God and not shrink from it or skirt what about the things in scripture that are hard to understand what about the things that are completely Countercultural. What about the things that seem antiquated? What about the things that we ourselves don't like? What about eternal hell and separation from God? What about our own sin that keeps us from God, that must be confessed and repented of? Will we shrink from proclaiming the whole counsel of God? If we won't, we may as well make our own labels and just paste them right on our chest or on our forehead because we know what other people are thinking already. 
nothing really has changed. Paul reveals in that statement that he knew the unpopularity of the message he was proclaiming and the resistance against it. By him saying, I did not shrink twice, he's admitting, I, I saw the opportunity to shrink back and not proclaim, to withhold, perhaps daily. And he said, I did not. I resolved, and you know it to be true, and I risked my life to live and to preach that way. Otherwise, he would not have said that. Had there not been any threat to him or any chance to hold back, why would he need to proclaim that and repeat it? So nothing really has changed. The whole counsel of God's Word was even more hotly contested and rejected in Paul's day even than it is in ours. Though we face the same temptation and the opportunity to shrink back. And I'm not talking about being tactless or not contextualizing the message. And here's an example. In a conversation with a friend this week, we were talking about spiritual things and life and lots of things and ultimately uh, different worldviews. And he just outright asked me, so Ben, you, you, I, I, I'm a good person. You believe, though, if I understand you right, that I am going to hell when I die. Will I shrink or skirt from the whole counsel of God's Word? I'm talking about tact also. I don't say, yep, you got it, with a big smile on my face. I am compelled to proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God. And for someone who says, I do not trust and love Jesus by his own testimony, the result of the, of the truth of the Word of God is that he will live separated from him. But I am also encouraged to proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God. The Word of God is not primarily about sin and hell. It is about the forgiveness of sin and the rescue from hell. And what I proclaim to my friend is the love of God who has so loved that He's pursued even Him that He, God, desires all peoples everywhere to have eternal life, joy, hope, and fullness in Him. That's the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I will not shrink from proclaiming that. I do join Paul when he says in Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's no shame in proclaiming that message. But you do risk in not denying, in speaking the truth in love, you risk, and I would, my friend walking away, only hearing an affirmation that in fact he's not good enough and he will go to hell. And that's what Ben thinks of me. There is risk in proclaiming the whole counsel of the Word of God and not shrinking or skirting. And Paul lived with that tension But what is more risky? 
I think it's more risky to shrink and skirt in a day when our world is experiencing more and more evil, more and more fear, more and more depression, despair, anxiety, pain, suffering. If we need a couple examples, our suicide rate continues to climb up 30% in the last 20 years with the largest percentage growth segment being amongst teens. The number of senseless mass murders in our world is rising exponentially. So evil, pain, suffering. The number of Americans who believe the Bible is the actual word of God is at an all-time low. Is there a coincidence? Paul saw the evil and the pain in his world and would not shrink from proclaiming the only source for true hope and healing. He was not only humble and transparent and vulnerable, he was bold and he was urgent in his message urgent he lived knowing his time was short and believing ultimately that what jesus said was true that he was coming back soon that's a matter of perspective that we've talked about that's the way paul and the early church lived paul said in romans 10 verse 13 again the gospel for everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved But how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul lived with this sense of urgency in proclaiming the message of hope and healing in a broken and lost world. But to live this way is risky to live humbly, to live passionate, to live transparent and vulnerable, to live courageous and urgent. It's countercultural, at the very least. It may cost us comforts, safety. It may cost us our very lives. But if you're anything like me, the biggest risk of all is actually the least significant, but our culture has made it ultimate. It's our own reputation. It's what others think of us. It's the approval of man. Who is our audience? We're so aware, aren't we? And desperate for likes. A culture striving for the approval of of others. And so on a plaque in my office, on the middle shelf that I see every day, is Galatians 1.10, where Paul says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's both a choice in that And a reminder, probably even to Paul himself, 
And it's not just, I would not be a servant of Christ. I've chosen, but I could not be a servant of Christ. They are mutually opposed to one another. I am either living my life for the audience of one, or I'm living my life for the audience of an indefinable number of people that will never be enough. If we could live for an audience of one, but how risky would that be? And I would ask you, how rewarding? When Jesus preached the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, as we've defined it, Matthew chapter 6, almost the entire chapter is on this very subject. The way you live your life for the audience of one, the way that you love, the way that you give, the way that you serve, the way that you pray, that the only thing that matters is that your heavenly Father sees you and He sees all and He will reward you. The audience of one. And Jesus concludes this thought by saying, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather and yet your heavenly Father sees them and feeds them. He sees all. Are you not much more valuable than they? He says, your heavenly Father sees and knows all that you need. So seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all things will be added to you as well. Living by faith is full of risk and risks to live for an audience of one to be like Paul is encouraging these leaders to live in humility, transparency, passion, vulnerability, courage, and boldness, and urgency. But what if living like that, what if, what if those steps day by day, one step, keeping in step with the Spirit, what if that leads us to a place where we say, my life is yours, Lord, whatever you want from me, And what if the answer to that ultimately is sell everything and move to Africa? And we see that and it's been on display right before us in our beloved friends. And I know, I know the response of some, if not many, is I don't want that. And so I will stop the journey now. Let me remind you that no one ever set out to that as an end. But the thousand of simple steps, day by day, made that one not all that significant. Another yes, Lord. My life is yours. Because if that's the biggest risk of all, and if that stops the journey, then don't walk forward to this table today. There's not very much risk in walking forward out of your turquoise pew across this threadbare, tannish carpet to take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and receive. Not much risk at all. The risk is saying to Jesus, you are Lord, Savior, and King. My life is yours is you gave your life for me. And doing that day 
after day after day. The risk comes when you walk out these doors and follow the specific ask that Jesus gives. But He will lead you to that point. For many, and the expression of that call and the fulfillment of that call will look different for all. And it's not a measure of greater faith. It's probably, rightly, the measure of consistent faith. What if God asks you to get up before the sun every morning to pray, Lord, send me into the fields you've already planted me in, but with your heart and your eyes that I would not miss the pain and suffering and that I would not shrink back from proclaiming the hope of the gospel in those contexts. Lord, help me see it. What if it means well into retirement years, you're not content to sit as if you deserve it because you've earned it. But like Paul, you say, Time is even more urgent than it's ever been. And like a runner who sees the finish line, runs faster with everything he's got, you start to change your perspective of what you've been living for and how you are called to steward what has been entrusted to you. It will look different. It's not a measure of greater faith, but a measure of consistent faith. Faith takes risk. But the Gospel compels us. It compels us, does it not? It humbles us because we know what we have been given. Because the grace that we have received is beyond anything we could have deserved. And so we are compelled to share that grace, the message of that hope, The Gospel compels us. It makes us passionate and tender if the Holy Spirit dwells in us because we will see the lost, the hurting, the broken, the suffering. And we can't help but weep the same tears that Jesus would weep over a city and over its lostness. It makes us courageous because our hope isn't here. It's not in these things. It's not in this beating heart. And so we can live without shrinking. It makes us urgent because Jesus said, I'm coming back at any moment and we believe Him. The time is short. There's a lot to respond to. I wonder if God is speaking generally to you or if He's speaking specifically. Probably some of both in a gathering like this. If God is confirming through the through His Word and through the Spirit, something that you have been stirring on and you know you must, then respond to that. Write it. Make sure to share it. It's a great response in life groups. And God is asking me to step boldly to live in faith-filled risk in this way. I know He is, and I'm asking for help and prayer. Be faithful to respond in that way. For those that He is speaking generally to, Be both convicted and encouraged as you come to the table. I hope you hear me clearly. This is an invitation, but it's not to come with religious motion because it's what we do every Sunday. But it's to come with faith-filled devotion 
to say to Jesus, you've given your life for me, I receive. My life is yours. Lead me. Come with that heart as we respond. Let me finish with Colossians 3, 23 and 24 and invite the team to come and to lead us in a time to sing, pray, meditate, share in communion, and give as the Lord leads. Paul says, these are Paul's words to the church at Colossae, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. So in these moments, we draw near to Him because He's drawn near to us. Because Jesus risked all and gave all to love and pursue us. And we respond in kind to that. With the hope and in the grace of the Lord Jesus and the power of His Gospel to save everyone who believes. May it be, Lord. Amen. Come as you are led. If you're a guest with us and new to our community, we respond always to the Word of God. It's how we set up our our service like this. So come to the table. It is available to you at any point as we sing or remain and dwell on what God is speaking to you. Be encouraged and convicted. And then as we go today, I pray that we go with a mindset that He is sending us into His mission field to be His missionaries for the glory of God and for our joy. Lead us on.